Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. This is Pretty Much Pop here at the top of most of the pop most Today we're discussing the enduring cultural prevalence of the Beatles in light of the recent release of Peter Jackson's documentary, Get Back. This is Mark Linsermeyer. My favorite Beatles song growing up was I Am the Walrus. I'm Dave Hamilton. I do all kinds of things. I'm a musician. I'm a podcaster. And my favorite Beatles song is Ticket to Ride. My name's David Brookings. I'm in L.A. I work for Apple Music on the catalog team, making playlists and such. And I'm a musician, just put out a new record. I'm a Beatles fanatic. And if I have to pick a favorite today, I will say If I Fell from a Hard Day's Night record. So Dave Hamilton and I go way back with various bands and podcasting things. David Brookings, I've had on Nakedly Examined Music, and his music is great. And, you know, I called you because you were the guy notorious for recording yourself singing solo every single Beatles song in their entire catalog. They're all on YouTube. How did I leave that out? Yeah, I went on this crazy project 10 or 11 years ago now and did all 209 Beatles songs in 209 days, I called it. Trying to do all of them with acoustic, yeah. Oh my. And finally... I'm Colin Marshall. I'm an essayist on cities and culture, topics like that. I live in Seoul, uh, South Korea. I write for Open Culture, and I started listening to the Beatles only very recently. I'm 37 now. I started at 35. So uh, it's, it was a long road. It wasn't winding, but it was long to get to the Beatles. Very crazy. Yeah. So in terms of sort of the backgrounds, I feel like the height of my Beatles fandom was maybe in high school. And I think they taught me how to write songs. And they became the benchmark for all these other bands, you know, that REM would come along, these things that they had a sound. But they didn't necessarily consistently have songs. New musicians would come into my band potentially to play. Are you actually writing songs? Are there something that will like go through my head later or not? And also just teaching me how to arrange something, you know, use fairly simple elements and use them in a wonderful layered way. And that's sort of still what I see as the ideal, even though I got into lots of weird kinds of prog and jazz and stuff later on. But that's sort of the core of what it is to produce music that I can actually understand is the Beatles. My entrance to the Beatles was interesting. I was a very, very new drummer. And there was a guitar player from Germany that was staying with our house because he was interning at my dad's company. And he had learned English primarily by learning Beatles and Beach Boys songs. (laughs) And he was a guitar player. He stayed with us for about a month. And we mostly played Beatles songs together pretty much every night until he left. And it was this total immersion I had known the Beatles from listening to them and hearing my parents' records, and I was maybe 14 or 15, you know. But this was my first immersion into the Beatles where they became mine. And then several times throughout life that has sort of happened again. You know, I'll get deep into the Beatles and then sort of get out of it and get deep into it and get out of it. And like you, Mark, they are, for me, the benchmark against which all songwriting winds up being compared, whether I mean to or not. Yeah, David, what's your, obviously, you know these things in and inside and out. 
So when I was growing up, and I'm, I just turned 43, so I was an 80s kid, right? My favorite show was uh, The Monkees on MTV as they were re- re-airing those in 86, 87. And then someone said, you know, The Monkees, they made this to try to, you know, they're sort of trying to emulate this other band, The Beatles. Well, at the same time, my dad found this box of records he had, and he had great 60s stuff, Doors and Turtles and Love and Spoonful and Dylan and Beatles. And I saw he had the Help album, and I saw their hair. And I just thought my hair looked like theirs. So I wanted to see what this was about, what it sounded like. And it was the best sounding thing I'd ever heard. And so I got a guitar long, not long after that. I was nine years old. And instantly that, I don't know, it's fascinating why certain music makes sense to your, your heart and your soul and just feels like you. It just felt really natural. And I started writing songs not long after that. I feel very lucky that for better or worse, that was like very obviously what I was going to do in my life's path. And I give them almost all the credit for it is just was the best stuff I'd ever heard. It still is. Yes. And your songwriting is pretty directly Beatlesque. Even, I don't know, are you more of an early Beatles guy than a later Beatles guy? I think that their early stuff is criminally underrated because I think most people say later Beatles is better. And I just, I don't think that's true. I'm not saying it's not more evolved and there's more texture and a lot more stuff going on, but to write the stuff they wrote, when no one else was writing like that. And the reason that they're my favorite is because I study songwriting so much, not just from them, but uh, that whole era writing Everly Brothers and, and Chuck Berry and, and Beach Boys and Early Stones I love. And I love Tom Petty. And it's all Beatles-centric type stuff. But when you listen to the, the bridge of From Me to You, let's say, nobody writes like that. For that song to be in C and then just flip to G minor 7 is absurd. And certainly for 1963, unheard of. So their writing was so far ahead of its time and of of what other groups and bands were doing. Other bands back then mostly weren't even writing for themselves. And these guys redefined it in so many different ways, including that you can write your own songs and not have to go and go after Lieber Stoller, no offense to Elvis, or other people (laughs) writing for you. You can do it yourself. They were so good, they taught the Rolling Stones that you can write your own shit, you know? <laughs> Just incredible. All right, Colin, be our naysayer. I can't say anything <laughs> negative about the Beatles, having listened to their studio catalog. I mean, who could, really? There's. I was reading a description of the Beatles as universally beloved, and that's really not much of an exaggeration. And there's no other band you can say that about credibly. But yes, I saw a tweet a few days ago with all of the acclaim over Peter Jackson's Get Back, which we'll talk about. This tweet said, it's ironic how in the 1990s, there was the Beatles anthology, that documentary of about 10 parts, which aired on PBS in I think 95. And ironic that boomer parents were all forcing their millennial kids to watch the anthology in the 90s. And now millennials are going insane probably sitting their own kids to the extent that they have them in front of Get Back. Millennials have come around, but then again, most of us were already on board, even in the 90s with the Beatles. I was, I guess, an exception. I don't quite know why I didn't latch onto the Beatles at the age you're supposed to in your early teens. Sonically, I guess it just didn't do it for me. But at the time, no 60s music did. The early 60s music of the Beatles or other bands, it seemed a little too... As a kid, I would have said it sounded too simple. And the later stuff I would have said sounded too hippie-ish. It got to be almost a mark of distinction where I felt like if I start liking the Beatles, it's been done. I won't get any points for that. So it got to be too late to get into them to some sense. That's how I felt in my 20s. But then I realized, you know, this is a big hole in my cultural awareness. 
And if I do listen to the Beatles, I'm going to have to do it right. Every album, read everything I can about the band, every movie, every piece of supplemental material I'm going to have to engage with. And it took me until about age 35 to get there. But one real trigger, one chapter of history that planted the seed in my mind to really just seriously start listening to the Beatles was a book called The Vinyl Countdown by a guy named Travis Elbro, History of the Vinyl LP. I read it in about 2009, and he gets into the a much-told story, but one that was kind of new to me, of the rivalry between the Beatles and the Beach Boys to make more and more ambitious albums. You know, you've, Rubber Soul leads to Pet Sounds, leads to Sgt. Pepper. And that story was very compelling to me as a, an album guy, essentially. I mean, I, I, that's the format that resonates with me the most. I thought, well, okay, I guess if I listen to the Beatles, I'm going to have to listen to all the Beach Boys then and all the Rolling Stones maybe all of Bob Dylan. And that's indeed what I'm still doing. I'm still now working on listening to the entire Bob Dylan catalog. But having caught up with the Beatles, I feel like I have uh, filled a hole, shall we say. You mentioned kids getting into the Beatles. My kids are now in their early 20s. But as they were growing up, it, my kids were sort of force fed the Beatles. So I don't really count that. I mean, my, my kids have been spoiled. They got to tour Abbey Road Studios. They've gotten to hear things that people don't get to hear. Wow. Uh, and I've been spoiled, too. And they came along for the ride, right? So this was great. But watching their friends and looking at the bands over time and wondering which ones will last past us, the Beatles are definitely on that list. A vast segment of the kids that my kids were growing up with were all into the Beatles. You know, looking at the Rolling Stones, mm, not so much. I don't think they make it past, you know, my generation. I don't know. I mean, we'll see. Pink Floyd, I think, will make it. You know, there's other bands that I, I think will. But the, the Beatles, it's an obvious thing. It, their music, in a way, is timeless. I mean, even watching that Get Back documentary, the only thing, I mean, it was the, the physical elements that made it obvious that this was recorded 50 years ago. The recorders, the old cars that you would see on the street, right? Those things made it painfully obvious that, oh, this wasn't today. But the way they were crafting songs and, and working together as a band, and of course, the songs that they were coming out with, timeless. They don't sound like 60s songs. They sound like Beatles songs, which will always sound like Beatles songs. Yes, they made their own sonic world. Yeah, because a good song is always going to be a good song. And so they're totally timeless because you're right. They could have been done tonight, tomorrow, yesterday, you know, yesterday and today. Even watching them at the end of the, the Beatles career there in that movie, watching them play, you know, one after 909 up on the roof and, and even down in the, in the hole, as it were. That's a well-crafted tune. And, you know, and it was one of their early ones. It's nothing earth shattering about, you know, what went into making that song happen. Except it's a really good tune and a lot, a big part of it is the, the way they make their harmonies work together and all of that stuff. And it just, it made sense then in their career, just like it did even before from me to you and anything like that. I was lucky enough to get to go to the premiere in LA. There were only two premieres. There was one in London and there was one in LA. And this was a hundred minute version as opposed to the eight hour version. Yeah. But it was at El Capitan Theater on Hollywood Boulevard. And it was, you know, the British overuse the word brilliant when they're talking about stuff. <laughs> this was truly brilliant. And Julian and Sean Lennon were there, and Stella McCartney and Olivia Harrison. And I just feel so lucky to get to be there and see that because it was just special. And to, then to watch the whole thing on TV, it took me a few days to get through it just because of life. But 
I hope they released this to the public because in the, the movie we watched, he talked about how he had gone through all the hours and hours of tape and how he made it look so great and how the original Let It Be movie looked so grainy and how they had gone through and, and gotten it to look so new and crisp and pure. And also how they had to pull the guitars and the bass and the instruments down so you could hear what they were saying when they were talking to each other. And that kind of stuff was just really cool to hear about from him. And so I hope they put out his dialogue of explaining how he went about making the the film. It is a technological achievement, isn't it? I've written about this for Open Culture a few times now, about the AI systems they had to develop to separate, to demix, to turn a mono track with instruments and voices into each separate thing on its own track. And the visuals, of course, everybody talks about, but it's a technological achievement that I don't think could have been done 10 years ago, let alone when the documentary Let It Be was being made. And in a way, it's like the Beatles music itself was made possible by technologies that didn't exist before their very specific era, right? Right, yeah. I had a similar experience watching the Ron Howard Eight Days a Week movie back, you know, whatever that was, five years ago or so. Because, you know, I'm watching it. It's like, well, wait, we can hear them playing in these stadiums how is that possible and i actually got to ask that question of giles martin shortly after the movie came out he was the one that toured us around abbey road studios and what he couldn't tell us was the day after he toured us around was when he was starting to mix that in studio three but that did allow us to go into all the studios and it was it was wonderful but i asked him about it after it came out and (laughs) he says oh I cheated. I'm like, what are you talking about, Childs? He's like, oh, no, no, everybody already figured this out. He said, uh, for like, Sar standing there, the audio for that was awful. The, you know, the recording of that. I mean, they were, you know, playing through the columns and the recording was terrible. He says, so I took the vocals from that and then I took the studio recording and he's like, I went into studio two and I, I ran it through speakers on one side of the room and I put some microphones on the other side of the room to make it sort of bouncy and cavernous. And he's like, so I used the musical track from the studio and then the vocals from the live show and sort of put it all together to flush out that bottom end of the recording. (laughs) That's in the spirit of the Beatles, isn't it? That studio technology that's uh, pushing the the envelope with audio. That's it. Yeah, exactly. We got to see in this documentary a close up on the era of Beatles that on first pass I discovered I guess I'm a George Martin fan because it was my least favorite album for a long time when Let It Be Naked came out. I was so happy about that because like, I refuse to acknowledge that the earlier version with the Phil Spector, the strings done after they were, weren't around, like that that even exists. That let it be never happened. Yes. But you know, I often just think of one of the really valuable models that the Beatles provided for me was just like a model of artistic advancement and creation. And sort of there's a natural arc to it that I then, you know, see in other bands and see in other just even time periods of music of how much more, it's not like Rolling Stones where they did Satanist Majesties because other people were doing psychedelic stuff and then they went back. Like this was, you know, a very definite progression from this to the White Album, which I just regard probably as their greatest achievement. I don't know. And it's the thing that I modeled my whole college band after. But then sort of, it wasn't going to go up in terms of experimentation forever. Like they had to come back down and rediscover themselves. And, you know, if they hadn't broken up here, I sort of wonder like, yeah, maybe it would have been more like the Stones of just like producing, you know, not an ever changing road of experimentation, but just kind of, you know, like Tom Petty albums or something like a progression of like, this is stuff I enjoy, but it's not necessarily breaking new ground every time. 
There was something just about that wave that crashed. And so we got to see and get back like where they're actually, you know, trying to get back, trying to rediscover what it was that made the early stuff great. Like, can we consolidate that into our new ethos? And I totally appreciate much more now after having seen this. Hey, let's stop for some sponsor messages. If you haven't finished your holiday shopping yet, do not panic. We've got a secret sauce for incredible original gifts, and that's Uncommon Goods. UncommonGoods.com has the absolute best gifts for everyone in your life. We're talking moms, dads, teens, in-laws, besties, your one and only, and it's not stuff you can find just anywhere. Uncommon Goods has unique and creative gifts, often handmade by independent artists and makers. So skip the gifts that scream last minute and find something truly original at UncommonGoods.com. So, for instance, in my family, we give Christmas ornaments. I don't want to get an ornament from Target or something. Just by searching ornament at the site, I see a Save the Ocean ornament set that has, like, a manta ray, Four Seasons glass globes, these incredible colored glass, like they're a tree exploded all inside of them. Personalized holiday sweater ornament. Bam! Something checked off my list. And here's a gift idea. Uncommon Goods also offers Uncommon Experiences. You can choose from live online classes in mixology, cooking, flower arranging, embroidery, and more from handpicked artists and experts. With every purchase you make at Uncommon Goods, they give back $1 to a nonprofit partner of your choice. They've donated more than $2.5 million to date. To get 15% off your next gift, go to uncommongoods.com slash PMP. That's uncommongoods.com slash PMP for 15% off. Don't miss out on this limited time offer, Uncommon Goods. We're all out of the ordinary. This episode is also brought to you by ZocDoc, which connects you for free with great doctors in your area to go see right now. Because when you need a doctor, you probably don't want to wait a few days, a few weeks, definitely not a few months. So here's a solution. Go download the free ZocDoc app. The easiest way to find a great doctor and instantly book an appointment. You can search for local doctors who take your insurance. You can read verified patient reviews about those doctors. And you can book an appointment in person or video chat immediately. Every month, millions of people use ZocDoc, including me. It is my go-to whenever I need to see a doctor. I just use this for an eye doctor appointment. It was ridiculously easy to use. And whether you need a primary care physician, a dentist, a dermatologist, psychiatrist, any kind of specialist, ZocDoc has you covered. ZocDoc makes healthcare easy. Now is the time to prioritize your health. Go to ZocDoc.com PMP and download the ZocDoc app to sign up for free and book a top-rated doctor. Many are available as soon as today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash P-M-P. I watched Let It Be, the original documentary, as part of my listen-through of the Beatles discography last year. And it was, it's a really grimy experience. Uh, I don't know how better to put it than that. It's supposed to be depressing because of the Beatles you know, fighting at that point. But aesthetically, it's just, it feels somehow dank. I don't know how to put it any better than that. But it sucks. It sucks compared compared to Get Back. I've never seen something recreated destroy the original. I remember watching it on VHS in the early 90s and just thinking like, I don't ever want to see that again. It just made me, I don't know, it just made me feel, maybe I need to see it again. I'm sure I will at some point. I think re-watching that now through the lens of, or with the foundation of what we know from the, the larger picture of Get Back, it might tell a different story than we thought we were being told the first time. I don't know, but I'm positing that. I remember seeing the trailer for Get Back, the first trailer, and I thought, 
this looks like a hard day's night. It was so happy and jolly and it made them all dancing around and Lennon being goofy. And, oh, it was so fun. I mean, fun looking. And I, when uh, we got to meet with briefly over a Zoom with Jeff Jones about it and I asked him how, who's the president of Apple Records, and I, I asked him how it looks so happy. And he said, well, it wasn't all like that. I think the movie does a good job of, and he was totally right, of showing that there was still magic left in the Beatles, but they were definitely having their issues and their their moments. I think that all shows on Get Back on the movie. Get Back tells the whole story, right? Because you're right. Let It Be made it seem like it was awful. And then when the, the Giles Martin remix of Let It Be came out, you know, a few years back, yeah. his commentary and the commentary from them that he included on the extended edition was sort of the first time that we all heard. And I think his words were somewhere along the lines of what I'm hearing as I listen back to this stuff is a band that's having fun in the studio. You know, I'm not hearing that all the infighting and everything. And sure enough, there's both, right? For sure. But I mean, they were productive. Mark, you and I were sort of having this conversation ahead of time. But, you know, I think Paul McCartney, Get Back certainly tells the story. And I think it's correct. Although, what do we know? You know, we're told what people want us to see. But Paul McCartney was at a creative peak for that three-week period. I mean, all of that wouldn't have happened without Paul's urging, right? He wanted to play a gig. Let's get everybody together. He was the cheerleader of the whole thing. But his songwriting output was spectacular. And I think everyone in the room knew it and it didn't necessarily make them happy. There, there was one moment <laughs> where George, they, the camera was on George and he wanted to work on something of his. I forget which song. It wasn't something. It was, it was a different song of his. And Paul was doing one of his songs and it might have been Get Back or something. And you could see this realization wash over George's face that, okay, I'm frustrated because I want to work on my song, but we're working on his song but I'm also in full agreement that we should be working on his song because what that guy is pouring out right now is pure magic and we need to capture it. And my stuff has to take a backseat and it sucks, but I'm a hundred percent on board. And it, it was a, you know, a 10 second moment, but you can see it in his face. Like he's like, ah, crap. Yeah. Let, let's go. Like I'm in. You're right to highlight this. I was thinking of a similar scene in get back where, I think it's not the same one you mentioned where George is pitching all things must pass. And John, I, th I believe, says, do you know what music we make here in the Beatles? Uh, you know, is giving him a hard time. And Beatles fans seem to believe that all things must pass is good, but it is not a Beatles song. And I got the sense, I got this reinforced that uh, the band, they needed to please each other. That was one important point is, yes, sure, they're all in their own ways geniuses, but they could get shot down by the other three. Each one could get shot down by the other three. And in the case of the ultra-productive Paul, he needed to be shot down occasionally, right? Not every time. But I was uh, not so much pleased, but amused to see in Get Back so much footage of Maxwell's Silver Hammer, which uh, arguably was the one song that needed to be taken down by the others. But by that point, they couldn't do it, which tells you a little bit about why the Beatles broke up, as the critic Ian MacDonald argues. You're saying a lot there. And uh, just on the George point, I think All Things Must Pass, from what I know, he didn't want it to be a Beatles song because he, he intended it. He knew he had so much material and he was going to, he's even telling John in that movie, I, I think it would be cool for me to go off and do my own thing, just see what we could do on our own. 
What was happening in Get Back with that song? Uh, I think he was rehearsing it. It was one of his new songs, but he had like he had Not Guilty too, which they tried for the White album and ended up coming out on 33 and a third 10 years later. And that was another really cool thing along those same lines to see that to see Paul playing Another Day, which wound up on Ram or excuse me, a single right before Ram. And then oh, I wrote this last night and he starts playing Backseat of My Car, which was another really cool song off his solo records. But what you guys were saying, Dave, what you're saying about McCartney the dude was incredibly, first of all, he pretty much dominated. And the reason Paul is my favorite Beatle, with all due respect to the others, and especially John on anniversary death day as we're recording this, is that McCartney, I think, kept the Beatles together and spearheaded every project from Pepper to the very end. And yes, to really see it laid out like that, how brilliant he was to write the song Get Back just on a bass, playing it like a guitar, was amazing. And yeah, he had so much shit. There was a great bit where Lennon says, yeah, Paul would work on your song once we'd done Maxwell Summer Hammer 35 <laughs> times or whatever it was. But I mean, when you're bringing that level of stuff in, no one could keep up with him then. He knew that what he was writing was great. And everybody else knew that it was great and also knew that Paul knew it that it was great. And they hated it <laughs> because it. It sucks to be in a room with somebody like that, <laughs> but, but it's also amazing to be in a room with somebody like that. And you just got to suck it up in those moments. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think the, the film really showed how George leaves at the, at, and Twickenham gets kind of set aside because it was, they talked about how cold it was there and camera in your face at eight in the morning. They clearly got on the same page a little more so after that. And when they, once they went into Savile Row, and it did seem to get happier once George came back and bringing Billy Preston in, which I'm sure we're going to get into, made all the difference in the world, too, to bring other life into that. He was so great. And so happy all the time. Yeah. He kept them on better behavior because he was just such a, a joyous presence. We talked about on Anthology in the 90s, there's a great bit where George is talking about Billy Preston coming in. And I'm not going to try the British accent, but he basically says it's interesting to see how people behave nicely when you bring a guest in because they don't really want everyone to know that they're so bitchy. Don't fight in front of the guests. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, they they were on excellent behavior at first when he was there and then they got comfortable with him and, you know, the things that needed to come out came out, but I, I, he kept them on task. Maybe that's a better way to say it. You know, it was like, well, we've got this guy here. And I did not realize how close it came to him being an, the actual fifth Beatle. Like, I mean, to hear Lennon say that and get back sort of, and Paul, Paul was right to shut him down when Paul said, wait, we, we, we got enough problems with four Beatles. Bad enough we don't with four need Beatles. five. <laughs> but they didn't, they were kind of cash poor at that point in time, right? Because they were producing Monty Python films with all their money and stuff. So I was going to say there were royalties for days. There were royalties for decades ahead of them as, as is, has been proven, right? But in the moment, paying him cash was like, oh, yeah, okay, you're fine. You know, like we've got to carve out some money for him or whatever, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, their their Apple Records was losing money big time. That Python wasn't happening yet, but yeah, they were losing a lot of money from. It's more like a mid seventies thing, but yeah, um, that's they right. were losing a lot of money by then. I mean, they had Neil Aspinall's business manager, but they were losing a lot of money. Yeah, they hadn't figured it out yet. I mean, which is how things go. You stumble at first. Yeah, are you all still? Living the Beatles breakup as if it was a preventable a divorce or, you know, fantasizing about what the post breakup life would have been or something like that. Dave is shaking his head. No, 
<laughs> like, okay, if they had Billy Preston, if they became like a, a normal touring band, or if they even just were like, fine, if George Harrison doesn't want to do this new thing, what if they actually got Eric Clapton in there? Like, it's so sacrosanct that it's, it has to be these four guys. Wasn't that amazing when <laughs> Lennon just said, well, that's okay, we'll just get Eric. Yeah. <laughs> Room for one more. Because he isn't, he isn't looking at it in that moment with 50 years of reverence. Right. Right? I mean, like, that is a normal thing that would happen in a band. I mean, it's a little bit of a fuck you. Like, okay, well, he's out. We'll bring a new guy in. It's fine. We're going to keep going. That happens in a lot of bands, including that one. You know, it just it just so happens that the way it evolves, they stopped. And now they're this thing preserved in time. I mean, it, but that's true of a lot of musicians. Like, I look at, at Hendrix, right? I mean, the same kind of thing. Like, a career cut short. Now, the, the Beatles weren't cut short at that point by people dying but you know Hendrix was and I always wonder like what would have happened to Hendrix's how would we perceive Hendrix today if he didn't die when he did because he would have kept creating music my theory is that he would have turned into Prince like I think Prince is is the evolution of Hendrix right he was always on the cutting edge he was always doing he was kind of weird and quirky and so I, th- I think Prince is some elements of, of what a future Hendrix might have looked like. That would have been fantastic, right? Obviously. Now, Prince, there's another discography I want to listen to the entirety of. But Absolutely. You know, these thought experiments on what, what if the Beatles had lasted longer are always compelling. But I, as I say, I've been listening to full discographies after the Beatles came, the Beach Boys and the Stones, and I'm listening to all of Dylan now. And what's always compelling with the long discographies, the decades, you know, 50, 60 year long careers is. There comes a point, inevitably, when the nature of the artist gets out of phase with the nature of the zeitgeist, with the, the you know, popular production methods. For 60s bands, 60s acts, it was always the 80s. Their nature was at peak opposition, shall we say, to what was popular. And so you get a lot of, you get the Beach Boys 1985 comeback produced by the guy from Culture Club, which I actually find a compelling album for that reason, because the nature of the band is so unlike the nature of the production, or Leonard Cohen, I'm Your Man, which is a more successful album, or, you know, the Stones put out a lot of sort of product in the 80s, which is maybe not the most enduring of their music, but that clash between production and their sort of the nature of the guys themselves, it always fascinates me. And what would the Beatles have been? There was an article 10 years ago, we we were speaking, as, as we say, on the anniversary of the death of John Lennon. About 10 years ago, or 11 years ago, there was a piece uh, imagining what it would be like to profile a living John Lennon in his 70s. Do you guys remember that? It was called Lennon at 70. It was in somewhat poor taste and circulated for that reason. But it envisioned a Beatles 80s comeback with sort of mullet ponytails. And, you know, we can all be glad we didn't see that specific development occur. But, you know, you have to wonder, right? But they did stuff in the 80s. I mean, other than Lennon, of course, like you listen to Press to Play, or tug of war. So there's the successful and unsuccessful side of doing it because tug of war went number one and press to play uh, might have, but there's not as many songs on it. It's all about songs. If you have a good song, it'll probably be good, but that's all good stuff to, to say. I wonder what Hendrix would have done in the eighties too. What have you been doing? You know, touring flock of seagulls or something. <laughs> I, have to, I have to show you guys this really quick because it goes really quickly back to what we're saying about Paul and the others hating him for it. This was a tweet I saw the other day. It's a photo of the others pushing him off a building, basically. And it says, been hearing that Get Back completely glosses over this murder attempt. So hard pass. 
(laughs) I mean, the funny part about it is, yeah, we want to kill this guy. He's so amazing. I mean, song after song. Well, and he continued to produce song after song after song for a while. You know, we were talking about with my daughter, who's, like I said, early 20s. I had no idea that Live and Let Die was written, commissioned to be written for a James Bond movie. And I said, yeah, of course. And, you know, we talked about lots of the commissioned theme songs for James Bond movies, many of most of which are throwaway songs. Right. And so McCartney certainly could have done a throwaway song and gotten away with it. Right. Like, well, it's James Bond theme song. Of course, it's a throwaway. But it, I mean, it, it was it. it became a huge part of his. Ca- it's a great song. And, and it stands on its own as a fantastic McCartney song, so much so that people have no idea that it's a James Bond theme. So it doesn't sound like cheesy and kitschy. Or, it's a great song that happened to be commissioned for a thing. Although, if we're going with that, then what Adam Schlesinger did with That Thing You Do was equally as amazing because that was commissioned with a name and being told you have to write something that could have been uh, you know, in the top 10 alongside the Beatles and people can't get sick of it when they hear it, you know, 15 times over the course of a 90 minute movie. And Schlesinger said, hold my beer, which was amazing. <laughs> right. He like, he's, it's like, and he great cranked it out in the afternoon. Is. It's a great, oh, it's freaking amazing. But, uh, movie like, too. And a great movie. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. It does seem that Get Back has, uh, Paul has come out very well of Get Back. Uh, his, his profile has been raised further still, which is funny because you look at, music media from the 80s to bring up that decade again. And Paul McCartney is, is public enemy number one in those days. He can do no right. I mean, it, it seems like everybody just wished he would go away 40 years ago or so. But now with McCartney 321 and Get Back, he's, he's arguably the most beloved celebrity alive. Would I be too wrong to say that? Hey, you're right for me. I mean, McCartney and Dylan, I think, are probably my one and two. Or Beatles and Dylan are my one and two all time. But, you know, what would have happened if McCartney had been shot in 1980? How different would that what world would that have been? You know, a lot of people, Lennon never really got old enough to make. I mean, you know, not all the McCartney stuff is great, but I mean, most of it's pretty awesome. And that, that dude's 78 and still doing great stuff. The, the most recent one, the quality that guy's still doing at almost 80 is unreal. And that he's still performing and, and touring and doing pretty well at it. It is odd, though, that it takes a special kind of geek to go through a phase of like, I'm going to listen to all the early Wings and McCartney solo stuff, let alone the Lennon stuff, let alone the Harrison stuff, that there's such a drop off. You know, I don't know the sales numbers or whatever, but like that the Beatles are this canonized central thing. And that even though McCartney, like some of those songs, it was just entirely random, whether they appeared on the Beatles thing or appeared on one of his solo things, you know, a year or two later, it's entirely consistent. But yet the gloss is not on it. There's something that, that it's only a very select, self-selected group will actually even explore this stuff. It's true. To restate the obvious, there was a magic between Lennon and McCartney. And when they worked on each other's songs, you know, watching them playing those tunes, the Lennon tunes, McCartney is singing along even if he's not singing a harmony Lennon is singing along with McCartney, even if he's not singing a harmony. They both know each other's phrasing and inflections and have have at times helped each other, you know, craft those. Yeah. I know that there are some songs that were only written by Paul and they get called Lennon McCartney. I mean, that, you know, that story has been told over and over again. But I think they were right to do that because they really did 
help each other. At the very least, they were helping to select what was going to work and what wasn't going to work, even yes, if they quality didn't. control. It yes. was quality control. That's right. Yes, every, exactly. every band should have that, whether they co-write or not. You know, right. that you got to have people in there. I interviewed the, somebody from the Mekons, and they, I think they all their stuff is group credited. It's clear that the role of some of them is merely to say no. Is merely no, to say, sucks. like, they, don't, they yeah. don't come up with any original ideas. It's just to be a quality control voice. And a lack of quality control seems to be the number one complaint about Paul McCartney's solo career, is he's got this impressive, hugely impressive fecundity and could make a song, he could finish a song, without the song really being finished, if you know what I mean. Uh, the st- there's examples brought up from his catalog, you know. My Love Part One, I believe, is uh, brought, usually brought up as an example of a song that sounds like it's done, but it's just not there. But this is something that Paul McCartney brought up in McCartney 321 with Rick Rubin, the Hulu series. He had this idea. For me, it's all about forging ahead. I just keep going. I put it out. There's always something new to make. And that I found very admirable, especially for a man at that point in his career. I took it to heart, even though it results in the occasional My Love Part One. Uh, that's been his grand bargain, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, and also what we were saying about Lennon not being there, not only means he's not there to say we shouldn't do that song, but he's not there to bring half the album either. So you get Red Rose Speedway from McCartney (laughs) because there's not, you know, Jealous Guy or Imagine to mix in there. I want to tell you about our sponsor, Bespoke Post, and their new seasonal lineup of must-have box of awesome collections. Bespoke Post partners with small businesses and emerging brands to bring you the most unique goods every month. Some of it is outdoorsy stuff or bags or knives or things to wear or electronics. What you do is you take the quiz at boxofawesome.com and your answers will help them pick the right box of awesome for you. They release new boxes every month across all their different categories. It's free to sign up. You can skip a month, cancel anytime. Each box costs only 45 bucks, but has over $70 worth of gear inside. For instance, there's this hibernate box that looks very cool. It is the Grizzly Cabin Slipper and some eucalyptus and bergamot room spray. There's the Parlor Box, a three-piece decanter set for your various hard alcohols with a heritage wood bar tray, very classy, or antipasti, a ready-made charcuterie board. I'm sure I'm not saying that right. That's okay. With this cool cheese board made of sturdy acacia wood, a cheese knife trio of really funky, cool-looking Bosca knives and an all-natural French-style pork salami and some little French pickles and mustard. So very nicely curated stuff I would not be smart enough to pick out myself. Get 20% off your first monthly box when you sign up at boxofawesome.com and enter the code PRETTY at checkout. That's boxofawesome.com, code PRETTY, for 20% off your first box. If you are carrying a credit balance, it can seem like you're in a never-ending cycle of debt, but Upstart can help you make that final payment so you can get ahead. Upstart is the fast and easy way to pay off your debt with a personal loan all online. Whether it's paying off credit cards, consolidating high-interest debt, funding personal expenses, over half a million people have used Upstart to get one fixed monthly payment. Upstart knows you're more than just your credit score and is expanding access to affordable credit. Unlike other lenders, Upstart considers your income and current employment to find you a smarter rate for your loan. With a five-minute online rate check, you can see your rate upfront for loans between $1,000 to $50,000. You can receive funds as fast as one business day after accepting your loan. And after, of course, doing some research to see if you should be doing this. But debt consolidation is often a very good idea. I have done it, and I'm hoping you will research Upstart as one of your options for that. 
Find out how Upstart can lower your monthly payments today when you go to upstart.com slash pretty. That's upstart.com slash pretty. Don't forget to use our URL and let them know we sent you. Loan amounts will be determined based on your credit, income, and certain other information provided in your loan application. Go to upstart.com slash pretty. I saw a really cool thing a few years ago, someone writing about what the next Beatles album would have looked like. Well, you'd have had Maybe I'm Amazed and Imagine and Jealous Guy and All Things Must Pass and My Sweet Lord. You know, I mean, <laughs> they're a pretty good record. These were guys competing with each other, right? And all of the songs you just mentioned were the result of that competition, even though they didn't make it on a record that said the Beatles on it. They, they very much were, at the very least, presented as part of that competitive process. They may not have been refined as part of that competitive process, although they all of those songs wound up being fantastic. Well, yeah, know? so the early version of Jealous Guy, what is it, wrote to Marrakesh or something like that? Like, the places where they... The lyrics of Get Back that were all about immigration that they like. Yeah, the Pakistani stuff. Yeah. I mean, maybe if it had actually been completed that way, then we would be all like, we would be signed up for it. But like, no, all I hear is these McCartney, too many people, these kind of lame McCartney social commentary songs. And like, yes, this would have been in there if there wasn't for that refining process. I'm definitely reading into things here and and feel free to tell me that you've heard that I'm exactly wrong. But watching the rooftop concert, they played the song Get Back several times in that day. And when hey, they were finishing something, not something, a song, and Harrison noticed that the police were on the roof, he immediately started in to get back and led the band into it yet again. I saw that as he still sees this as like a protest song. <laughs> Even though the lyrics really like that, that none of that is left in there. But, you know, they had just experienced this a week prior. So it's still that mindset of like, all right, if the police are going to shut us down, it's going to be while we're playing this song about Jojo. Yeah. <laughs> and I love how Mal Evans, their big roadie, turned George and John's amps off. Yeah. And George turned it right back on. And so then Mal's like, well, I better turn John's back on then. And they just keep going. They just keep trucking. And all the footage of the people on the street, all the the older people saying, I like them. I, I don't like them. They woke me up. I mean, most of the people were saying this sounds great. And we're glad they're here. Yeah. Yeah, it was cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, with the lens of 50 years looking at that, that anyone would ask the Beatles to stop their what, what became their final live performance. It's just preposterous to watch. Like the 14-year-old looking cop. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I'm going to arrest you. Really? This is where you want to go down in history, huh, buddy? <laughs> okay. Yeah. This gets to a question that kept occurring to me, and I'm, I'm still thinking about it, uh, when I began listening seriously to the Beatles, which is, what context to put this music in? How much do you have to put yourself mentally in the 1960s? And how much can you listen to it simply in the present. As we say, there are little kids in the 2020s who are getting into the Beatles now who know nothing about the 1960s. But at the same time, they're inseparable from that era. And to a degree, you have to put yourself back there, don't you, to see exactly or to know exactly what was so exciting about a song like uh, I Want to Hold Your Hand, which I've read so much about artists, Bruce Springsteen, Bob Dylan, who heard that song and, and it blew their minds and they had to change their entire worldview and lifestyle and they changed their entire relationship to reality. But I have to admit, I don't dislike that song, but I would really like to have my mind blown by it. And I haven't figured out a way to do that, if you know what I mean. It won't happen. But we still get to hear that song and enjoy it. And I think the fact that Get Back stopped being a protest song through its evolution 
speaks to how the Beatles either intentionally or accidentally stumbled onto creating timeless things. But I don't think it was accidental. You know, Paul, when he was working out Carry That Weight with Ringo, you know, he had the chorus and then he was just sharing ideas. He's like, well, you know, we, we need to, it's got to be a guy who goes out and gets drunk and his wife and he's, he wakes up and it's, it's things that happen to everybody. And it, it wasn't just things that happened to everybody that day. It's things that happen to everybody over and over again and have been happening and will keep happening. Again, I think there was something in there where they understood how to make these things not so set in the 60s. I mean, it was only a couple of years ago as a Beatles freak that I found out that Come Together was also a commissioned song of sorts for Timothy Leary, right? I mean, it was a campaign song. Yeah. It's ridiculous. I mean, it would be a terrible campaign song. <laughs> of all 1960s figures, Timothy Leary. Yeah. I need to admit that it's been long enough since I listened to Get Back or Abbey Road that I kept waiting, like, when are they going to start working on Come Together? <laughs> like, <laughs> I know what you mean about being able to separate listening to them now from then. That stuff's still timeless. We're never, I'm never going to know what it felt like to be listening to the radio in February 64 and hear that song coming on the radio for the first time. It's kind of like I'm a little old to see Goonies for the first time. I, I had to see it in the 80s to really grasp that coming out right then at that moment in time. But those songs still... If they were some kind of emo band just coming out and about to put out their first record, that's interesting to think of, too. Would they still hit? And I think they would with those songs. But it, a lot of it is so much of it is time and place. And when you come out, and they were just right for the moment in so many ways. And those songs are miracles, like like you've seen it written before. And I mean, for this still to be good and sound so fresh still and look so fresh as they're recording it, like you were saying, Dave. It just all adds to their whole thing. This is a non-Beatles example, but there's a film writer by the name of Tom Anderson. I was reading an essay of his about, and then he kissed me. And he said, I heard that song when it came out. Was it 63? He was driving along to college at the University of California. The song comes on, and then he kissed me comes on. He has to pull the car over because he's so overpowered by the novelty and the, the sort of new world this song opens up. He can't actually drive. He has to pull over and just listen to the song. And I'd be lying if I said I didn't wish I could have a taste of what it is to be just so overpowered by a song, especially a song like that for the first time. Yeah. Oh, man. I mean, it, yeah, we're ne I'm never going to know what that was like. I know what it's like to hear a Justin Bieber song for the first time. And it, it ain't the same thing, I'm imagining. <laughs> you weren't overwhelmed? Uh, no, I got no to hear it smells like teen spirit for the first time. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Mm, mm, mm. That's probably like as close as we can get to that feeling. That was completely different and new from everything else. Yep. You know, I actually, I distinctly remember the first time, I think probably they saw the video of smells like teen spirit. And my first thought was like, oh, I see how that combines certain hard rock and I saw, okay, this is a combination. This will get famous. But like, it was not like, wow, this is moving me to my very soul. It's like, yeah, I see this is how this is repackaging a couple of familiar elements into a new combination that this is definitely going to break big. So, so that's, <laughs> that says more about my close heartedness probably than anything else. <laughs> you were right. <laughs> yeah. My daughters are 15 and four, but I try to really take in what they're listening to and what they like. I think the closest, this is crazy sounding, but the closest thing now that we have to the Beatles or Nirvana might be like a Billie Eilish. So crazy huge. Why is that so huge? I don't know. We should definitely, you know. Well, I'm glad you bring up Billie Eilish 
because I was thinking, I too thought of Billie Eilish while considering the Beatles uh, a little while ago and thinking, there's a quote from Clive James, the, the late writer Clive James, of whom I was a big fan. He said in some interview in the 2000s, you know, I don't care about originality in culture. Vitality is all I care about. And I've, I've kept that with me. I, I think I agree on some deep level. But vitality is maybe the, the signal quality of the Beatles' music. Vitality in the 1960s, vitality today. And vitality, I would argue, is the quality signally lacking in much pop music today. Billie Eilish is an extreme example, but much of what I hear, I live in Korea, of course, but when I hear the Western stuff here that makes it into the gym playlist or what have you, it sounds like it was composed and recorded in a kind of haze. It, there's a sort of antidepressant feeling about it all, if you know what I mean. The vitality is simply not there, and I don't want to sound like a middle-aged guy complaining about the kids' music these days, but... Well, we can't help it. <laughs> we graduated as a culture from LSD to Prozac, so maybe you're exactly right. It could be the drugs. I mean, Paul McCartney himself has said this. What was the 60s? It was drugs, basically. That was the foundation, in some sense, of what we were doing. And as the drugs change, so the music changes, perhaps. But you're right about that Billie Eilish thing, but she is talented. I mean, if you try to listen to that stuff from the way they listen to it, there is something cool about it. But I know what you're saying about there's this very, this, this apathetic quality to a lot of stuff nowadays. And I think that's a sign of the times too. A lot of these kids, I don't know. What would you say Billie Eilish is sort of about? What is she about? I think it's a cool story that she writes and produces stuff in her parents' house with her brother and that he helps write a lot of the songs. And I saw a cool documentary on her the other day. Since I work uh, you know, for Apple Music, I have to try to stay up on sort of to a degree the modern stuff. I'll always rather go listen to some Kinks album I've never heard before, <laughs> you know, or Blonde on Blonde for the 80th time. But I do have to sort of know of it. It's hard to say what they represent. And it's just like me saying I, I saw Goonies way too late. I can't say. It's, it's generational. Not, we got to yeah. stop comparing Goonies to the Beatles, though. I'm so sorry. <laughs> you're, you're right. It's more like Star Wars. There you go. <laughs> yeah, because Star Wars is timeless, too. I never saw Goonies, and that's the last I'll mention of it until recently. That's what got me thinking about it. There you go. Star Wars is a good comparison because Star Wars is big enough that people have tolerance for mass consumption of minutia about it. Right. Whereas with a band, there are very few bands. You know, there's just so much competition that are a religion. Well, they can cut through the noise and gain the sort of popularity that they could actually do experimental stuff and have the public interested in the dynamics between multiple distinct songwriting personalities. Like that seems a really rare thing. I'm sure there are lots of bands out there that have multiple songwriters. The police had multiple songwriters. But when the one Andy Summers song song comes, like you want to fast forward over that. Like that's not it's <laughs> that's not why they got popular. You know, there's a compromise. That's yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. To allow something that he's saying on there, but to actually have, you know, something where they have multiple personalities and they blend that well. I don't know. It just seems like inevitable that those bands, they break up, you know, Super Tramp kind of had that. But then one of the guys leaves like that's what happens that you the Jayhawks, if you have two great songwriters, probably it slims down to one before too long that keeps going with the title. I call them the super groups in reverse, right? Like a Genesis is the same kind of thing, right? Where it's just like, there's no way that these people can all, like, it's, it's great that they did this, but also it's not going to last. <laughs> people should be grateful for their level of fame and clutch to that thing for as long as they possibly can. I know plenty <laughs> of folks do that. 
it's been nice that there's been sort of periodic reminders of the Beatles that we mentioned the eight days a week thing and the let it be naked, the Beatles anthology, the Beatles one, the Beatles love, like that these things just with some regularity, like there seems yeah. to be a new Beatles album. Why? <laughs> like that's so crazy for a band that's been dead for that long. <laughs> There's one chapter of the Beatles ongoing revival that I hadn't really considered much before I started reading Beatles books, but Rob Sheffield, the critic Rob Sheffield has a book called Dreaming the Beatles about seven, eight years ago it came out. And he gets into the importance of the CD reissues of the Beatles albums during, again, the 1980s comes up once more, but a lot of the the groups in the 90s who were so Beatles influenced, they came to the Beatles because of the CD releases, which were staged in the late 80s, one by one as big events. And that a lot of the Beatles influence today owes to the CD reissues in particular. I don't know if I'm entirely correct to say that the Beatles were, I mean, of course, they weren't forgotten in the 70s and early 80s. Oh, they definitely weren't as big. You're right. You're totally right. Those CD reissues were a big deal. To me and all my, you know, I'm 50 now and everybody my age, that's when, you know, I said there were several times through my life where I remade the Beatles my own and those CD releases were one of them. And then the Giles Martin remixes of each album more recently, the digital stuff. Oh, yeah, those are so cool. But again, like that was a, oh, I need to get back into these things. I mean, I've heard all these songs before. <laughs> I think they, I think they know and have known for years now that we can keep squeezing blood from this turnip and people want it. Like, what was that cool footage of them showing Lennon getting in the helicopter with Maharishi? I'd never seen that before. If they put out that, people would eat that up. Beatles in India or something. You know, and, and I think that 19- is a documentary that has come out or just, I, I at least saw an article about it, about the Beatles oh in India, a new documentary. Yeah, I posted something about it a few days ago, but I, I'm not sure if that's what you saw or not. But you're right. Every few years they put it out and it's awesome. Like when Live at the BBC came out, that was a big deal in 94 to hear all those uh, radio releases they'd done for BBC. It was really cool. It's always something every few years. All right. Well, thanks, guys. We didn't have anybody trash the Beatles and say they're overrated. Those people are out there. They're, well, they're billionaires. And wouldn't it be nice to sort of level that off but the billionaires get to then spend a gross amount of money to like go to space and it just or you know have a, a major helping africa it, it, there are at least arguments for like why power should be in in this hands and i think you know comparably i'm not actually in favor of billionaires but but comparably the fact that the beatles have hogged so much airtime from the rest of the universe at least at the time, enabled them to, you know, so that even like a minor Beatles song, even though like across the universe or I don't know, the day of, you know, my name, look up the number has not yet come, but it'll come where that is like the theme to a, an entire film or something like that. <laughs> it just lets like something that would have just been a cult band thing, you know, like Sid Barrett solo albums or whatever actually become part of the mainstream. And that's something that I think post sixties has never been reproduced. <laughs> Like, there will never be another Beatles. We all know that. And not just there won't be, there will never be another John, Paul, George, or Ringo, but there will never be another entity occupying the cultural space of the Beatles. Too much has changed. The cultural and technological and economic factors that gave rise to the Beatles are gone, for better or for worse. Many of us are thinking for worse these days, but uh, at least we have the music. We're just not big enough K-pop fans or whatever. I'm sure. Oh, don't get me started. (laughs) Don't get me started. Oh, that one guy left the band. I'm so. (laughs) 
people still have that reverence for like these personalities. With it's just I'm not young enough to even remember the names of any of them right now. Well, it's d- displaced religion in some sense, right? The Beatles became a religion. BTS is a religion for an entirely other group of people. I'm not in. I didn't become a young believer in the Beatles, but I, I nor am I a 37 year old believer in BTS. I don't think it's going to happen. All right, David, plug your album before we get out of here. What's your new album? Well, I just happen to have it right here. It's called Mania at the Talent Show. It's the ninth record I've ever put out. It just came out on November 12th, which was my birthday. It's uh, 12 songs, one cover of a Tom Petty song called Magnolia, one of his lesser known songs, but a really cool song. I'm psyched about it so far. It's just crossed over 35,000 streams between all the major uh, streaming places, which is cool for little old me, so I'm going to work hard on it, keep at it with writing songs and playing. All right, and anyone like who likes this should go listen to Dave's music podcast, Gig Gab. And Colin, do you have anything? So oh, look him up at openculture.com. Anything else to promote, book or anything? ColinMarshall.org is where the writings are, but Colin Marshall on Twitter as well. Awesome. All right. Thanks, listeners. Thanks to you guys. Bye. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. You can also now get all the bonus content directly through Apple Podcasts by signing up for a paid subscription there, which gets you ad-free episodes and extra talking not only for Pretty Much Pop, but also for my other podcasts, Nakedly Examined Music and Philosophy versus Improv. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life Podcast Network, and it's also presented by openculture.com.